do the handheld mic thing here today. All right. So apparently no one wants to hear my opinion, or Johnny doesn't want to hear my opinion, so turn me off. Um, so we entered the opinion age at some point, uh, and, and that opinion age is marked by everybody having access to the same information and sharing their own individual opinion about that information. And it reminds me very much of the story of the Tower of Babel. Here was this great moment of human achievement that was supposed to have mankind leave their mark on the world, and the end result is confusion. Everybody's speaking in a different language. And that feels a lot like the moment we live in today. Lots of confusion. And it leaves us with the question is, what is truth in this world full of opinions? About a month ago, we were preparing for Easter on Good Friday, and one of the things that we looked at on that Good Friday service was the trial of Jesus, in which there is an incredibly important exchange between Jesus and his judge, Pilate. And we look at that exchange in John chapter 18, where Jesus before Pilate, and and Pilate's just been out in the courtyard talking to the Jewish officials, hearing all the stories they have to tell about Jesus. And he walks inside, and, and here's what he says. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? That's one of the stories he had been hearing from the from the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders outside. And Jesus answered, do you say this on your own accord or did others say this to you, say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? So Pilate had been told many stories about Jesus. We even read in the book of Matthew that Pilate's wife comes to him while Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat judging Jesus and says to her husband, I've had a dream about this man and you should have nothing to do with him. And so you can imagine Pilate who is in the middle of this controversy between the Jewish religious leaders, his wife interjecting with her own dreams, wants to know what is the story of this man? Who is he? And so he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, who are you? Tell me your story. And Jesus, of course, tells him the truth. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he gives his purpose. He says, my purpose is to bear witness to the truth. And that raises Pilate's famous question, what is truth? 
what is truth? That is not just a question for our day. We live in a day where, of course, truth is of primary significance, of of incredible significance in our day, but it is a question for all time. What is true? What is ultimately real? And what does it all mean? Well, I think the best way to to start in, in describing what truth is is first by explaining what truth is not. What truth is not? I think we need to have a good idea about what truth is not before we try to define it, before we try to pin down exactly what truth is. And so here is a list of things that truth is not. First, truth is not whatever works. Truth is not whatever works. It is very common in our day to think that if it works, it must be true. It's not just common in our day. If we actually go back a couple chapters in the book of John, we read of an incident where Caiaphas, the high priest, is speaking with the other religious leaders, and they're asking the question, what do we do with this man Jesus? If he continues on in this way, he's going to bring the Roman Empire down upon us. They're going to make him king, and then the Roman Empire will come down, and they will destroy our kingdom and take away our power. What should we do with this man Jesus? And Caiaphas responds in a very pragmatic way, saying, well, it's clear what we should do. Isn't it better that one man should die than the whole nation perish? He responds in a very pragmatic way. What works? What will allow us to keep our power? What will allow us to to remain successful? What works? Ladies and gentlemen, what works? at least insofar as here in the moment, does not determine truth. What also does not determine truth is what you find particularly coherent, excuse me, comprehensive, or understandable. Let me grab my water. Thanks, Seth. Seth is saving me here this afternoon, this morning. All right. So truth is not what we find coherent, comprehensive, or understandable. The Bible actually has a word for this. It has a a verse for this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul calls this human philosophy based off human traditions. And he tells the Colossians to avoid it at all costs, to avoid it at all costs. There are lots of things in this world that seem coherent to you, that form what seem to be a good story. They can even be quite comprehensive. They, they can appear to be understandable to you. Like This makes sense with how the world works. But just because it is coherent to you, just because it is comprehensive, just because it is understandable does not mean it is true. Just several months ago, there was a, um, <clears throat> a group of individuals who based off conspiracy theories that they had read online that seemed to many of them to be coherent, comprehensive, and understandable, decided to storm the Capitol building. And in the process, revealed their own foolishness 
because what they thought would happen, this great storm that was going to happen in the country that was going to fundamentally change the country, did not happen. Just because something appears coherent to you, just because it appears to have you comprehensively sourced, does not make it true. What makes you feel good does not make it true. There are lots of things that might make you feel good in life. It might be nice that people compliment you in a certain way or say things that, that sound good and make you feel good at the moment. That does not make them true. What the majority believes doesn't make it true. What you believe individually does not make it true. What you intended it doesn't make it true. You might have very good intentions about something that you believe, about something that you say to somebody. That doesn't make it true. And on the reverse side of that, you might have very bad intentions about saying something, and it may still be true. The truth is not determined by our intentions, what we intend by it. There are lots of people who call out sin in others who have very bad intentions, very self-serving intentions, but you know what? The sin that they're calling out may still be a sin. And there are lots of people who would love to paper over sins in this world and say, no, 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 it's not sin. And they have the best intentions. They don't want to hurt anybody's feeling, but it may still be sin. We can all think of examples where intentions don't make truth, nor is truth what is publicly proved. Truth may be hidden. Truth may be private. Truth may not be publicly known. It may not be publicly provable. In the 1920s, there was a school of philosophy that developed, a scientific school of philosophy that claimed the proposition that the only true knowledge is knowledge that can be scientifically proven. This is called logical positivism, and it became, for a while, for a very brief while, the dominant school of thought amongst many scientists. As they would say, you know, the only truth that we can really know is what we can observe with our eyes, what we can see and repeat in the laboratory, and that's the only type of valid truth that we will accept. And I say that the reign of logical positivism was very brief because it didn't take long for someone to realize that the claim that the only truth that is real truth is, uh, is scientific truth isn't a scientific truth. And so the reign of the logical positives came and went with some baggage that's been left behind that we still believe even to this day and we give some preference to scientific truth over other forms of truth. So with all that having been said, that those are not what truth is, what is truth? I think we can encapsulate all of those things that truth is not under this statement. Truth is not defined by any human perspective. Truth is not human perspective. Mankind does not determine truth for ourselves. We are not the determiner of truth. We do not make it up. We don't make truth. It doesn't belong to us. It's not ours. And so we can't define it. And all of the things that I just listed are some attempt by humans to set a definition for truth, to determine what it is based on our perceptions, based upon our feelings, based upon what works for us, 
They're all human perspectives on truth. But mankind does not own truth. It does not belong to us, and we do not make it. It must be, at the end of the day, given to us. Since we don't own it, and since we don't make it, it must be given to us. It must be revealed to us. In John 18, 37, what we just read, a crucial port, a portion of this exchange between Pilate and Jesus is this, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to reveal truth to us. So what is truth? We can ask that right alongside Pilate. And since we've discussed already what it is not, let's take a stab at identifying what it is. Truth is what corresponds to ultimate reality. To ultimate reality. If you attended any of the semesters of our uh, C3 Institute, one of the questions that we ask at the beginning, or one of the statements that we make at the beginning of each class of that institute is this. This class is a quest for ultimate reality. Ultimate reality. What is ultimately real? There are two words that the Bible uses for truth. One is a Hebrew word that we find primarily in the Old Testament, and the other one is a Greek word that we find primarily in the New Testament. And the Hebrew word is the word emeth, and it has the idea behind it of something that's constant, something that is stable, something that is unchanging. And then the Greek word that we find primarily in the New Testament uh, primarily means, is the word aletheia, and it primarily means to unhide something, to reveal it, to make it known. And so we have these two concepts, this concept of something that is stable, something that is unchanging, something that, that uh, is always going to be there, and also something that is revealed. That's what truth is in the biblical sense. And so in a world full of change, in a world full of competing voices, we're looking for the thing that does not change. We're looking for the reality that is always true. We're looking for that one thing that helps us to understand everything else. We're trying to find out what that is. That's what truth is. That's what we're looking for when we're looking for truth. That one thing that is in the midst of everything else that's constantly changing. I mean, I change from moment to moment. We all change from, from day to day, from moment to moment. We just celebrated 10 years at this church a couple of weeks ago. And the change from that first day to this day has been profound. The faces have changed. The names have changed. The buildings have changed. So much has changed. We all change. And if for nothing else, this moment to the time I end this sentence, I have changed at least by about five seconds. We're in a world of change. What is that one thing that is constant? 
What is that one thing that brings unity out of diversity? You know, these two young ladies that we met here this morning that are, that are going off to Baylor and Texas A&M are going to a university. And that word itself, that very word, university, is, is a mashing together of two words that we're all very familiar with, unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. And the whole idea behind the concept of a university is the idea that you go to this place to try to figure out how to make sense, how to unify all the diverse things in the world, how to make sense out of all of it. Unfortunately, these days when we send kids off to university, that is often the last thing that they get. But that's the intention behind a university is to bring unity out of diversity. And so we're looking for this ultimate reality, this thing that makes sense of everything else. What is it? The Bible also uses three other words related to, uh, related to truth that help us, I think, understand what this thing is or how we find it. Because we need help finding out truth. And so the three words the Bible uses we can, we can find in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. All, those, all three words are listed right here in this one verse for us that relate to truth. And so here it is. For the Lord gives wisdom, there's the first word, and from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. These words, of course, we, we hear them frequently. They're related in many ways, but they're different also. And I think it's important to understand the difference if we're going to understand truth. So here is the difference between these three words. Knowledge, what we think of as, as knowledge, are the facts, the data, right? And there's all kinds of knowledge in the world. There might, you might have knowledge right now, for example, this room is cold, okay? Or the sky is blue, or the sky is cloudy when we walk out of here today, or the car is fast, all kinds of things. God exists. That's knowledge. Individual, particular pieces of fact that you learn about the world. And that's important. We send our kids to school. We, they're going to go off to university, and they're going to learn all kinds of bits of pieces of information, bits of knowledge that they're going to have to be able to take with them for the rest of their lives. And throughout your life, you're going to learn all kinds of bits of knowledge. But that knowledge is ultimately worthless if it doesn't also include this second word here, understanding. Understanding. The big picture. How do all of these particular facts fit together? How do, they, how do, they, how do I use them together? What, what do they mean? How do I understand them? We typically will call somebody who has gone to school for a long time and, you know, advanced beyond the beginning stage of maybe a discipline to an advanced stage where they now have kind of a categorical knowledge of everything in a particular field. We'll call them an expert who has incredible understanding over a particular topic because they see how all of these facts that are related to this discipline fit together. They have understanding. Knowledge is good. But it's only true knowledge if you understand how it fits in with everything else. And that, of course, relates to this last word up here that's very important to truth, wisdom. Wisdom. 
how do we live? How do we apply the knowledge and understanding that we have? How do we live wisely in this world? To kind of explain this a little bit further, I want to do something here that I, I hope will help. And here we go. So we're going to walk through a series of sentences that hopefully will help you see how this kind of unfolds. The first uh, uh, sentence that we're going to look at here is just the simple sentence, Mary weeps. Mary weeps, okay? What does that mean? We have a little bit of knowledge about something, right? Mary's weeping. We've got some knowledge. We know a fact about Mary. She's weeping. Well, let's add to the sentence here. Mary weeps because her son has died. We've just added a little bit more knowledge and maybe a little bit of understanding. Maybe we have a little bit of an idea of why Mary is weeping now, right? Mary weeps because her son has died as a criminal on a cross. Mary weeps because her son Jesus Christ died as a criminal on a cross. Mary weeps because her son, Jesus Christ, died as a criminal on a cross, but he rose again. Mary weeps because her son, Jesus Christ, died as a criminal on a cross, but he rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Mary weeps tears of joy because her son, Jesus Christ, died as a criminal on a cross, but rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Mary weeps tears of joy and worships God because her son died as a criminal on a cross, but rose again, defeating sin, death, and Satan. I want you to think for a moment. How did your understanding of that phrase Jesus wept, change from the beginning of that to the end. Totally, probably. I mean, unless you're a savant and you knew exactly where I was going with that story, you probably implied from the very beginning that Mary was sad, that she was sad because her son had died. And by the end, you hear and you understand that they were tears of joy. And not only do we get this knowledge about Jesus, about Mary progressively through the, the statements that were made, we also get greater understanding about what these words mean. And not only do we get greater standing about what they mean, we also see another element that she acts wisely in the midst of, her, of these statements because we see that she worships, worships, which is the appropriate response to the message that's been delivered. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 130, which I picked if for nothing else, then what a remarkable verse when you have a 119th chapter and 130 verses in a chapter. What a, what a great uh, reference for a sermon. The 130th verse. But here's what it says. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. As God's Word unfolds bit by bit 
And piece by piece, it brings understanding. And that's the third point for today. The truth is revealed through a story. The truth is revealed through the unfolding of God's Word over time. We spend billions of dollars every year on TV shows, Netflix subscriptions, movies, books. Billions of dollars consuming stories. We love stories. They help us find meaning and identity in this world. One of the, the most famous stories that most of us know as Texans is the story of the Alamo, right? The story of the Alamo, those 13 days of glory, you know, in the 18, I think, what is it, 1849, I think, is the, is the year where those Texans held up in the, in the Alamo, defending the Alamo to the last man against Santa Ana's army allowing Sam Houston just enough time to raise an army and win independence for Texas. Remember the Alamo. Stories have a great power to bring us a sense of identity. One similar type story, if you grew up in Russia, would be the famous story of Panfilov's 28 Guardsmen. Now, I don't expect any of you to know this unless you have a history from Russia, but there's this great story about World War II in the midst of the, the greatest battle of that war, probably, the, the largest battle of that war, the battle in, to take Moscow in, in 1941, where 28 Russian soldiers are said to have fought this last stand against the invading German army, where they fought to the last man. And they're credited in Soviet and Russian lore with, with almost single-handedly uh, holding off an entire battalion of German soldiers in, in armor and tanks and almost single-handedly saving the city by delaying and buying enough time for the defense uh, to be secured. Monuments were built all over the Soviet Union in honor and in tribute to these 28 guardsmen. They were given, each were given, each of the 28 were identified and given the highest military award uh, of the Soviet Union. But there's only one problem. Uh, it wasn't long after the war that uh, investigative journalists began looking into it and figured out, discovered, that almost the whole story was made up. It was almost all completely untrue. They found several of the men who were still alive, who had been claimed to have been dead, one of whom was even apparently had surrendered and then joined the German army, uh, who uh, uh, was later arrested and imprisoned uh, after the end of the war. Now, the, the journalists who discovered this were almost immediately silenced and put in prison. None of the statues were taken down. None of the monuments were removed. And to this day, it is still a hotly contested issue in Russia about whether to believe this story or not, with most just wanting to believe it because of the sense of identity that it brings to the nation, to the people. That's the power of stories, even false stories. So what is the story that we're interested in? What is the story that, that we care about that gives identity to us? And the book of Ecclesiastes now is not a particularly uplifting book. 
If you were to read the book of Ecclesiastes, you would notice probably if you picked up one of the Bibles here that are the same uh, version of mine and read some of the headings, here are the headings in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon having written this book. The first heading that we read is, all is vanity. That's how he starts the book. The second heading is the vanity of wisdom. It's all meaningless. The third heading is the vanity of self-indulgence. The next heading is the vanity of living wisely. And then next, it's the vanity of toil, and then he continues on, the vanity of wealth and honor, and on and on and on. The theme of the book is, well, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. And one of the most key texts in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is found in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3. Um, first, we read in, in verse 20 and 21 that one of the reasons why Solomon thinks everything is vanity or believes this, uh, everything is vanity is he has this statement to make, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who knows? And so he says this in verse 11. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's talking about God. He knows that there's a God. He recalls the words of his father, David, in Psalm 19, the very words that Luke read this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God. See, Solomon has knowledge. He knows there's a God, okay? But he says this, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know how it all fits together. We don't even know whether there's any life after death or whether we're just like the beasts and we die and we go into the ground and return to the dust. Who knows? We don't know the story. We don't know what God is doing. Now, by the end of the book, Solomon has uh, rested on the fact that, hey, I know there's a God and I don't know what He's doing. And all appears to be vanity, but we should trust God and at least enjoy what He gives us. He rests, ultimately, Solomon himself rests on faith. We know that God's good, and we just have to trust Him, even though we don't know what's going on. But that is not where most of the world lands. Most of the world land, does not land on faith. They don't know what's going on either. They don't know what God is doing either. And so we read this in Romans 1. This is the condition of most of the world. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what truth are they, what truth are they suppressing? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The same thing that David saw, the same thing that Solomon acknowledged, that the world declares the glory of God, everyone has access to that. Everyone knows that. And that's what Paul says. He says, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The heavens declare the glories of God. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they had knowledge, they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, claiming, uh, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, the response of the world to a lack of understanding of what God is doing is not faith. It's not faith. The response of the world to a lack of understanding is to make up our own stories. We make up our own stories. We make up the stories that allow us to live the way we want to live. People will make up the stories that make them feel better. People will make up the stories that allow them to live the kinds of lives they want to live. But we know the story. We know the true story. We know the story because Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. On Easter, Seth preached so wonderfully through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, where those opening verses, Paul says that he reminds us of the gospel he preached. And he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of all who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last He appeared to me. Paul is telling us the story. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about our 10-year anniversary and the story of our church and the two men walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus and how Jesus comes along besides them and he, he, they're wondering about the meaning of all the things that have been going on in Jerusalem. What does it all mean? We don't understand. And Jesus takes them through the Scriptures and He unfolds for them the words of God. And he explains to them how all of it, every part of it, relates to him. He gives them understanding, and they say in response, and our hearts burned within us, as he explained to us. See, truth is ultimately revealed in a person. Truth is re revealed in a person. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, in his great letter to the Colossians, can say this, which I think is the definitive statement on Jesus. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and in invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him 
all things hold together. What is it that brings unity out of all of the diversity in the world? What is it that explains everything else in the world? What is it that defines who you are and who I am and what everything in the world is for? It's Jesus Christ. Who is this ultimate reality? Jesus bears His image. Jesus is the ultimate reality. Jesus is constant. He is the one that the world is coming to, that the world are coming from, and who is going to. The last book of the Bible is appropriately named The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And there we read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus say this about himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is the ultimate reality that we're looking for. Here's the last thing as we close about truth that you need to know. The truth is what sets us free. The truth is what sets us free. Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, Abide in my words, and you will be my disciples, and the truth will set you free. To know Jesus is to know the truth. Which brings us back to Pilate's question. Here he is faced with all these stories about Jesus. And he asks the question, he doesn't know who to believe, and he asks the question, what is true? And like Pilate, we live in a very noisy world where there are lots of stories, where there are lots of things that we are tempted or called to believe. And what we need to ask ourselves is this, who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? We come back to Jesus' statement in John chapter 18, verse 37, where he says this, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Who are you listening to? In a confusing world, are you taking your truth from media, from social media, from the other books that you've read, from pop psychology, or are you going to the Word of God and letting the words unfold that you can have understanding? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your truth, for Your Son. Without Him, we would not understand anything. Without the revelation of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection, His perfect life, we would not know You. We would not understand how we should live wisely in this world without the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
you have so graciously and kindly revealed yourself to us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we leave today and every day, as we leave this building, as we leave the worship of you, you will send us out into the world declaring the story of the gospel to a world that desperately needs understanding. We pray that you will empower us to do that. We can only trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.